1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
2: Almost immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine last year, a rift opened up about what to do about Russian culture. On the one hand, cultural institutions wanted to show that they condemned Russian aggression. The Munich Philharmonic sacked Valery Gergiv, probably the best-known Russian conductor, after he made statements supporting the war. Operas, including the National Polish Opera, canceled productions by Russian composers. And all of this seemed to reflect what Ukrainian artists and writers wanted, too.
1: A really short time after February 24th, like a matter of days, um, a bunch of literary groups in Ukraine co-signed a letter calling for a total boycott of Russian books in the world and the letter, the, the rationale was these books are containers that have a toxin in them and through these containers that toxin is spread throughout the world.
2: The other opinion on this was that artists, especially dead artists, should not be held accountable for President Vladimir Putin's war. The people who felt that way tended to be Western culture lovers, often artists and intellectuals themselves.
1: Including groups like Penn Germany. And in response, uh Penn Germany put out a press release which was um the enemy is Putin, not Pushkin. And uh th- these two points were made. One was that literature and politics must be kept separate, and the other was Dostoevsky and you know, to a lesser extent Pushkin were uh oppressed and persecuted by the Tsar and were anti-autocratic and You know, therefore, they were dissident writers and they were good. And Putin is autocratic and bad, and they would have been against Putin now. That's writer Elif Batuman. Elif and I are
2: talking about this because in addition to writing best-selling novels, she has a PhD in comparative literature. Her first book is actually a collection of essays about Russian books and the people who read them. She's traveled a lot in Russia and in Ukraine and in other parts of the region. And she recently published a new essay we really liked here called Reading the Russian Classics in the Shadow of the Ukraine War. So today, on our first segment, we get into it. Because it's been a year now, and Elif thinks there's still some nuance missing. To her, the reason to rethink the Russian classics isn't just because they come from Russia. It's because the concept of Russian imperialism
1: is baked into them. The idea of boycotting, you know, I, as a Western liberal myself, am not in favor of boycotting. But I think we should oppose boycotting for reasons that aren't going to, like, exasperate, inflame, and gaslight critics of the Russian novel and its use in Ukraine.
2: After that, we turn our attention to music. Our music critic, Arwa Haider joins us to talk through a couple of recent trends. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Before we get into my interview with Elif, let me explain what I mean when I say Russian literature. We're talking about books from the 19th century, like Tolstoy's book War and Peace, his novel Anna Karenina, and Dostoyevsky's Crime and Punishment. Books that are known as the Russian Greats. What all of these books have in common is that they're known for being very long, bleak, and complicated. For example, in Crime and Punishment, the main character kills a woman and then spends the next 400 pages regretting it. But people are attracted to these novels because they're hard, but in a good way, the way math is hard. They're known to be pure and full of universal truths. Elif, it's such a pleasure to have you. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: So I spoke with you last time as a novelist. Um... You are also a journalist and an essayist. And uh, with a background in Russian literature, you have a Ph.D. from Stanford in comparative literature. Um, And now in light of Russia's war against Ukraine, you seem to be reexamining your relationship to to a lot of it. Um, And a lot of people are. So first, my first question is really, how did you get into Russian literature originally? Um, Do you remember what first drew you to it?
1: Um, yeah, the first Russian novel I read was Anna Karenina, which I read as a teenager, um, which was in the 90s. And what drew me to it was this feeling. Um, I actually read it in English in, in Ankara, where my um it's my mother's old copy, my my family's from Turkey. And they had a lot of books that were considered sort of universal and and human. And I really I related to it as to a human universal document and not at all a Russian one. And that was um, of a piece, I think, with the way that literature was taught and consumed um, in the 90s.
2: Yeah. And can you explain sort of, can you just describe the reputation Russian literature has in the Western world? You know, people are kind of obsessed with it as part of the Western canon and and why?
1: Yeah, I think it has... um, I don't know it has a reputation for a kind of rigor and seriousness and philosophical content mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that comes from how long the books are from the the titles from the kind of um also the seriousness with which literature is taken in Russia which you see which is part of what drew me to it so that it, uh, the tradition starts with Pushkin and Pushkin's personal censor is Tsar Nikolai and you know Dostoevsky is uh sentenced to a mock execution and like the there's this sense that what the Russian writers are doing is really high stakes, and it comes packaged in these books that are, you know, Crime and Punishment, Fathers and Sons, (laughs) War and Peace, and that these are going to provide some insight into the human condition that's been really, like, processed in this very rigorous philosophical way.
2: Mm. Can you tell me, so we're talking mostly 19th 19th century Mm -hmm. literature, Um, and what was going on in Russia at the time?
1: Well, so the big European novel traditions are— English is the major one, and, and French, and those both start around the 18th century. In the 18th century, there is no novel tradition in, in Russia. Uh, it's That's the century when um, Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great are transforming Russia into a westward-facing empire that can compete with the military and increasingly imperial power of um, England and France. And in the early 19th century Russian literature kind of starts with um, Pushkin. You know, and these classes are taught in universities as the age of empire, that Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Pushkin are writers of the age of empire. Mm-hmm. All of them in some way or another fall afoul of the czar's power and imperial power. But they're all also right. benefiting from it.
2: What's happening at this time is that Russia is expanding. It's taking over parts of the Caucasus and Central Asia, and in the late 18th century, it takes full control of a big chunk of modern-day Ukraine. The Ukraine takeover happens without a lot of bloodshed, but it's particularly hard on writers and intellectuals. Catherine the Great bans Ukrainian language and shuts down the Ukrainian church. The references to all of this expansion in the great Russian novels are subtle. Take, for example, Anna Karenina. Here's the plot. A married woman is attracted to another man, and she feels powerless against that lust. That's a personal story, right? But both her husband and her lover just so happen to make their livelihoods off of Russia's expansion.
1: Anna Karenina starts with Anna married to Karenin, who I, you know, I remembered him as from being a TA in, in a Karenina <laughs> classes. I remember that Karenin's a minister. He's in the civil service. He's a high, high-ranking civil servant, and he's won all these orders. And he's done some kind of work with the subject races. And I was just like, you know, what, what were the subject races? That doesn't sound good. So I, I looked that up, and it was Karenin was based in part on this real-life uh, foreign minister, Pyotr Valuyev who was active in resettling the Bashkirs, um, which was a population that was, you know, it it involved Russia annexing more property and having more more territory and having to um, resettle the people who originally lived there. And Valuyev also uh, was famous for putting out a circular that proposed drastically curtailing the publication of Ukrainian language texts, both religious and educational texts throughout the Russian Empire. So just to repeat that,
2: Karenin, Anna's husband, is based on a Russian minister who wanted to forbid Ukrainians from using their language. He also worked to displace and subjugate a bunch of other ethnicities. And then not to be outdone, Bronsky, Anna's big love, is a military officer who's offered a post to conquer Uzbekistan. He doesn't go so he can stay with Anna, but after she dies, he then goes off to fight the Ottomans in Eastern Europe.
1: The book ends with Vronsky's on a train to Serbia, where he's going to fight the Ottomans as part of this, like, pan-Slavic cause. So he ends up kind of on the side of Empire again. So mm. in both of these cases, we see that the the empire the interests of Empire prevail, basically,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, ok. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, of course, Anna Karenina reflects the events of the time. Where else was Tolstoy supposed to get his plot points? But this is where things get really interesting because Elif thinks that the problem with the imperial novels runs much deeper. It isn't just that they reflect a time period. It's that they reinforce that period's narratives of power. It's a theory Elif is borrowing from the literary scholar Edward Said. He's considered to be the founder of postcolonial
1: studies. This is an argument that Edward Said first made about English and French novels in a book called Culture and Imperialism. And his point is that the first sustained tradition of novels, where they were like the dominant literary form and they were being written really fast in response to each other, yeah. that starts in England and also in France at a time when England is the biggest empire that has ever been and France's rival. And basically, Said's case is that um, the novels and the empires were in a constant dialogue and they were often in some way supporting each other, that the empires made the novels possible, but the novels in some imaginative or cognitive way made the empires possible. Mm. So you would see like... Um, minor characters or like, you know, no good sons would get sent off to the colonies. That was a place to sort of dump off the minor characters. You would see um, certain plot lines being financed in certain ways by wealth that comes from the colonies. There's a famous reading of Mansfield Park where Edward Said shows that Mansfield Park is actually operating on the proceeds of a sugar plantation in Antigua. And then the the further argument is that well Mansfield Park is about you know Fanny Price comes to this house and everyone's kind of like unreasonable but she is reasonable and thanks to her virtues she marries the baronet's son and she inherits the property and it becomes hers and she kind of gets to like push the other people out so in a way that story sort of recapitulates the colonial enterprise or you could say yeah. Robinson Crusoe is it's about a, a European man who comes to a non-European island and exploits its natural and human resources right.
2: In other words, the idea that you could just go somewhere and take over that land and get profit from it, the idea that you could have a colony, was new in the 19th century. And for it to become popular, it had to kind of get lodged into our imagination. And what better tool than the novel? You don't even need to have characters screaming on behalf of colonialism in the novel. The colonies can just be out there in the background for people like Robinson Crusoe to take advantage of and enjoy. To Elef, what matters most is what people think in Ukraine. They're the ones that have been culturally oppressed. And Ukrainians think that novels are part of the problem. Major Ukrainian writers are publishing essays about it. And even if you go outside there, you see it. People have been toppling statues of the great Russian writers all over the country. They've even made a chatbot that helps you figure out which statues you should topple. Elef, can you tell us what Pushkinapad is?
1: Um yeah, it's a it's a movement to dismantle Pushkin monuments, which has spread across Ukraine. And to my knowledge, uh some dozens of Pushkin monuments have been taken down or or dismantled. One thing, uh there there's a telegram chat bot now, and if you ask it about any Russian writer, it will tell you whether that person deserves to have anything named after them in Ukraine right now and why and why not and the figure who has the most monuments and things named after him is pushkin because he's considered the father of russian literature and and russian literary language yeah. um so those were the first targets and they were um so there's been this movement it's it's mirroring the the leninopod movement from earlier which was taking down the lenin monuments yeah um, i was yeah. curious
2: about that because like you know as you say something similar happened with lenin
1: yeah when the Cold War ended. Yeah. But
2: Pushkin wasn't a ruler. He was a writer. Like, yeah. Why Pushkin this time?
1: I think a lot of it comes down to to language, to the, the extent to which Ukrainians were told for centuries that their language wasn't real, that it's a dialect of Russian, that um, Russian language and Russian literature are great. And, I mean, when Gogol, who was born in Ukraine and spoke Ukrainian... To become a great writer, he really had to move to St. Petersburg and write in Russian. And Pushkin was the first person to publish him. So in a way, I mean, Pushkin's kind of like the—he represents this, like, gateway of, like, the Russian literary institution that, that people had to pass through. Mm. Gogol, by the way, he's another great. He was
2: actually Ukrainian, but the only way for him to get published, as Elif said, was to write in Russian so he's considered Russian too. And that's how empires work. They eat up everything in their path. Even if Russian writers weren't always aligned with the monarchy, their novels still end up rebroadcasting its imperial ideology.
1: It sounds like a contentious claim that like, oh, Russian novels are a part of Russian ideology, but it's really not controversial or contentious at all. It's quite obvious. All it is is saying that works of literature are always a product of their time and their place and yeah. of their, the ideology that's going around. And sometimes that ideology is toxic and, you know, nobody, none of us is immune from passing on toxic, the toxic ideology that we have in us through what we write.
2: Yeah, yeah. Elif, I'm curious what you would recommend to somebody who's deciding to read a Russian classic now or, or an American classic now or either a British or a French classic now.
1: Like, think about the world now and, and what it looks like and what ideas about the world these books are helping. We you know, what anxieties are they, are they helping to relieve? What fantasies are they supporting? I don't know. Like, I reread War and Peace somewhat recently, and I was really reading it as what makes all of the individual people decide to join the war and reading it now, this time, it was just so clear to me that, you know, Prince Andrei goes to get away from his pregnant wife and the Rostov boys go to get away from their oppressive mother. I don't know. There's kind of a psychoanalytic critique of war in, in mm-hmm. war and peace that I just wasn't attuned to at all. I wasn't looking for it. I was really thinking about the personal as being its own story that was richer and more, to me, more interesting than the parts about, you know, what general said what that was kind of the moral of war and peace was that peace is so much more interesting than war. Mm -hmm. But I think that the moral of war and peace is that war and peace are inextricable and that the people who do the war are the people who are in the peace, you know? And Mm -hmm. like, just to not think of these things as separate realms. And also by the same token, not to let politics sort of debase literature and have it be like, you know, oh, you're just reading these frivolous novels about what's going on in people's houses. Like, no, it's like people come out of those houses and then they get a gun and then they go to some other country to shoot strangers. Like, that's what a war is. Right. So, Yeah.
2: Right. Elif, thank you so much. Thank I really you. enjoyed this conversation. Oh, it was a delight. <laughs> I've put Elif's essay, which was published in The New Yorker, in the show notes. I've also linked to an essay Elif recommends on the topic by the Ukrainian writer Oksana Zabushko. Let's talk about what's happening in the world of music these days. I've noticed some recurring trends lately. There are a few different genres from my youth that are coming back. And one of them is pop punk. You know pop punk. It combines the textures and tempos of 80s punk rock with the melodies of pop. It was big in the early 2000s, and now it's back. That's Olivia Rodrigo with her hit song, Good For You. It came out in 2021. And I don't know, but something about it sounds familiar. This is Misery Business by Paramore. It came out the year I graduated high school in 2007. This genre was bound to come back eventually, First, because the early 2000s is cycling back all over the place. In fashion, too. They're calling the trend indie sleeves. And second, because pop-punk and emo music is, frankly,
0: irresistible. That's something that's very appealing about the irreverence of pop-punk, the energy, mm-hmm. the spikiness, uh, the sense of humor, the silliness. What's really interesting now is not just that you have uh, a new generation of contemporary artists who have their own take on that kind of energy. But that there is a lot more collusion and collision between um, the two generations, which I don't think Mm -hmm. happened so much back in the day.
2: That's Arwa Hayter. She's a music and culture journalist who's a regular on the show. She writes reviews for us at the FT. I invited her on today to help explain some big trends that I've been seeing in music recently. Arwa, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much
0: for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lila. It's an absolute pleasure for me.
2: Um, okay, so let's get straight into it. Um, the first thing I've noticed that I'm trying to make sense of is the return of this like late 90s, early oddies, pop punk, emo music yeah. trend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm seeing two things happen. First, I'm seeing like the original, the ones we love are back. So blink 182's on a reunion tour. Avril Lavigne came out with a new album, Fallout Boys teasing a possible new album. Uh-huh. Paramore's back. And then at the same time, I'm like looking at this new generation, which is a little different, but it's, you know, Olivia Rodrigo and Machine Gun Kelly. And that, you know, on the emo side, like Phoebe Bridgers is maybe, I'm going to get in fights. <laughs> like they're going to be, <laughs> listeners are going to fight me. But Phoebe Bridgers is kind of this generation's bright eyes or death cap for cutie. And, angst is back and (laughs) be weird and sad and is cool again. And I'm wondering what the deal is. Am I crazy? Is this happening? And why now, Lila?
0: You're you're not crazy, um, but <laughs> yeah. I, I I would I would wholeheartedly say that being weird and weird and sad never gone out of fashion. It has always <laughs> been cool. Um, I mean, you know, you're right. There is a lot going on there. You've got artists who are back um, and who are getting a uh, new waves of respect. It's actually really nice to see that happen for someone like Avril Lavigne. I've got to say, who I think back in the day, was really successful, but also really maligned. Yeah, I don't think she was really respected. She wasn't. And it's really interesting to see, uh, you know, the, the clamor around tours, like when we, when we were young, uh, which, mm-hmm. uh, which is in its third year later this year. And that's, that brings together huge acts like Blink-182, Green Day, and The Offspring.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it feels sort of like this combination, right? We have this weird obsession with the 90s and early aughts. And then we also have this sort of post-COVID apocalypse angst. Mm -hmm. And then there's this logistical thing happening on the other side. Like there's the reunion tours, like you say. Um, Travis Barker, the drummer for Blink-182, he started a record label that Avril Lavigne is on. And it feels kind of like they're all helping each other make this happen.
0: There is a pragmatism behind it. I mean, someone like Travis Barker, of course, has also been quite instrumental in working with um, newer waves of artists as well. Um, I guess that kind of carries through a lot of the sounds and influences and, and makes it feel like there's a cohesion between, um, you know, that, that original kind of late 90s, early noughties uh, spiky sound and, um, and the current wave.
2: There isn't cohesion everywhere. Take an emo band like Bright Eyes— and their song from 2002, Lover I Don't Have to Love. Okay, compare that to Machine Gun Kelly and his recent hit, My Ex's Best Friend. You can hear the difference. Well, what is this about? Like, it feels like there's sort of this bright eyes, death cab era, these bands that sound like legitimately in pain from the early 2000s. And then now there's this like Machine Gun Kelly, Olivia Rodrigo era. They feel like Disney versions, <laughs> Epcot versions of what we used to have. Um, is that true
0: or am I just old? Mm. artists now have to, like, by necessity, have to come to the scene much more fully formed, you know? Um, Mm. Back in the day, you know, a record label, a mainstream record label would expend a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time on allowing an artist to develop. Right, figuring out who they are, yeah. Figuring out who they are, figuring out, you know, who their audience is. That does not happen anymore, and it hasn't Mm -hmm. happened for a long time. So artists, young, young artists are expected to come to, you know, mainstream labels, if they choose to work with them, um, pretty much fully formed. And so, mm. you know, you might have someone who's had uh, a grounding in performance elsewhere, or you might have someone who's been like playing independent gigs for like years and years and just already has an audience. And that can sometimes seem a little bit more um, manufactured, I guess. But, you know, I-, I grew up through the 80s and the 90s, which were huge periods for manufactured pop music so yeah totally i don't think this is any different i'll tell you what though i find it i find it really funny that with a lot of singer songwriters contemporary singer songwriters when when i was a kid the the generation gap was that adults would find um kids music too noisy and it'd be like you know what's Mm -hmm. that racket we can't hear you singing and now i as someone who's not a kid anymore um i find it funny that when i do listen to really young singer songwriters I'm often struck by how much I want them to sound harder and faster and louder. Um, Yeah. I don't find them intense enough. So, Arwa, this leads us perfectly um, into my second what's
2: going on here question, uh, which is, I think, aligns a little bit with what you were saying about um, having to be more fully formed now. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've lost our divas. Like, I've noticed that we're making fewer huge superstars And then at the same time, like musical genres are multiplying. So there's like more types of music and there's fewer big stars. And maybe the easy explanation is that like media is fragmented now and the monoculture is over and it's happening across culture. And like, you know, no one's reading the same book all at the same time. No one's watching the same show all at the same time. But it makes me wonder, like, who will be the prince or the... Springsteen or the Madonna or the Beyonce even uh, of this generation? Like, is that just gone as a thing?
0: Mm, I think that this is a really interesting one. Um, Mm. It's not the talent that's changed. I mean, I think I I genuinely wholeheartedly believe believe that there is infinite talent out there. Iconic talent is out there. But as you've just pointed out, the industry itself has changed seismically. Um, The platform's which existed, um, you know, for the heyday of some of the artists that you've mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't exist anymore. I mean, I just think that the sheer frenetic momentum of pop culture now um, and the way that we are consuming it, the way that content is expected to be generated is, is mm-hmm. the enemy of that. You know, something that I always hope, and I hope that actually the digital age will um, encourage more. I hope our future icons in terms of, you know, globally recognized music figures will be global music figures, you know, as in not not necessarily artists from the Western world, you know, and, and, you know, it's high time that was the case. I I hope that's changing. But yeah, I mean, the industry's changed. Yeah. The next Beyonce will be Bad Bunny. Mm.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> Bad Bunny is, of course, the Puerto Rican rapper and singer who's become world famous for his Latin trap and reggaeton music. I love him. I have to admit, our my executive producer, Tofer makes fun of me that I try to bring up Bad Bunny in
0: every episode of this show. I would be disappointed if you didn't bring up Bad Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and you. And he's great, you know, he's, he's a, I mean, he's actually a really good example of, um yeah a very independent spirited star who obviously you know still very very much tied in with uh you know Latin scenes but at the same time like quite rightly like much more internationally recognized now and so distinctive you know you can't yeah you can't mistake those vocals. Arwa right, well, this was
2: fascinating and as always a total delight. Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much. I really love speaking to you.
2: That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. There are links to everything mentioned today in the show notes, alongside a link to a special discount for an FT subscription that is also at FT.com slash weekend podcast. I've also put a special discount link in there for the second annual U.S. FT Weekend Festival that's on Saturday, May 20th in Washington, D.C., the lineup is awesome this year. We have Jamie Lee Curtis, Tanahasi Coates, Alice Waters, who's been on the show, Patty Yenich, who's been on the show, and of course, all of our FT colleagues from Jancis Robinson to Jillian Tett. You can go to ft.com slash festival dash US and use the code weekend podcast. Say hi to us anytime. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at FT weekend Pod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other
0: again next week.